Hi, this is Paul. I'm going to keep picking at this question of Islam. And I've been really enjoying this channel, exploring the Quran and the Bible. Uh, the person who runs it, I think he teaches at Notre Dame. And he had Tom Holland on. And this time he has, I first caught a clip of it. And the clip engaged me. And then last night in Costco, I watched the whole thing. I didn't watch the whole thing. I listened to the whole thing in Costco. I wasn't in Costco the whole time. But very interesting conversation. And I'm thinking I'm going to intersect this with the first chapter of G.K. Chesterton's biography of St. Francis. Because what it has to do with is historiography. Now, some of historiography might not be a word that's familiar to a lot of you. It's, it's basically, historiography basically deals with the question of self-consciousness with history. Because with a monarchical vision in sort of this way that modernism attempts to see the world and sort of imagines it sees the world, it leaves everything and just tries to see the world as it is. The study of historiography sort of pulls back the cover and says different people in different times keep seeing the world in different ways and sort of you can update it with questions of frames keep seeing the world through different frames now fred donner wrote a very interesting book in 2010 with a with a hypothesis that gets carried forward by tom holland and others that the origins, this is very interesting to me, how the origins of Islam is sort of this, 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 let's say it's a widespread, low-resolution folk religion. Now, that's very interesting to me as a pastor because when I meet people, that's usually where many people are, or at least how they present themselves until if you start asking questions, maybe you'll go a little bit deeper but the vast majority of people in common population in California or other places that I've worked in North America or even other places in other countries, their, their religion is about an inch deep. And you start asking a few questions and they very quickly get out of their depth. I've mentioned in other videos that I used to sometimes play this game with Jehovah's Witnesses where they would come to my door and um, if I had time, it was usually on a Saturday, if I had time and if it wasn't disrupting too much, I would sit down with them and, you know, they're there to talk to me. Well, I knew the shtick they were going to prepare. So then I start asking questions and they get all excited because, oh, we can, he's, he's asking questions. He must really be interested in becoming a Jehovah's Witness. But of course, because I know a little bit about their religion, I sort of know where to ask questions. And what I want to see is how much do you really know about Christology or the Trinity or what, what, what really do you believe? And in many cases, once they realized they were sort of out of their depths, and once they realized that I probably wasn't a good prospect to join their church, they usually sort of backed out and said, we'll send somebody by who knows more. I said, that's okay. You don't have to. I, you know, I, 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 it was fine. I was gracious. You can go ahead down the block. But it's just an interesting thing that you knocked on my door. You wanted this conversation. And now I'm willing to have it, but are you willing to have this conversation? And so what you find in a population is sort of a low resolution, fairly shallow amount of religious knowledge. And that's where sort of the origins of Islam get very interesting because of the shape of the Quran in many respects in terms of its perspectives on Christians and Jews and you know a lot of the a lot of the questions about at least the origins of Islam not necessarily what Islam would become over time but its origins get into well where exactly did it come from of course you can read Tom Holland's in the shadow of the sword so Fred Donner sort of walks us through how he got into this. So the first 17 minutes is the introduction. And then there's a nice sort of a Rando's bio in terms of Donner kind of goes through how he was first interested in chemistry and then got interested in history and enjoyed learning a language when he was um, in high school. And then, you know, because Latin was kind of fun and he kind of liked that. And French was kind of fun. So we wanted to do something where he'd have to learn another language. And of course, Arabic. Oh, we might as well learn Arabic. And 
it's interesting the way one's life sort of just winds. And so let's let's pick up the conversation there. Uh, but you know what 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 led to this? Why why did you begin the research that eventually culminated in Muhammad and the Believers? Well, you know, the book is, you know, I realized after I finished it, it's kind of a distillation of everything I'd worked on in my career <laughs> for the preceding 35 or 40 years, uh, because it all kind of contributes in different ways. And it, it would be easy to sort of get the mistaken impression that somehow my career was very carefully planned. I moved from A to B to C to D, and then they were all summed up in this book. But it was a very haphazard process and lurching from one thing to another. They had no connection, and I began to see the connections later on. Um, and also, actually, the background of this book and the concept of Islamic origins, one of the books that I read, again, when I was an undergraduate, which I was very impressed by, was a book, I think his name was, uh, the author's name was Van Meek, maybe Theophilus Van Meek. Um, and he wrote a book called Hebrew Origins, it was about the early Hebrews and the history of the Hebrew Bible and so on. And I was really, I thought that was a really interesting book. And so as I got into early Islamic history, I sort of had this idea in the back, I should write a book on Islamic origins. It was a kind of a counterpart to that book. Well, I don't think my book has much to do in common with that book, probably, which I haven't looked at in 50 years. But uh, nonetheless, that's, uh, you know, I, I had for a long time thought about working on this early period. I worked on the conquest, obviously, as a separate thing. And doing the working on the conquest book, um, I was then immediately thrust into the uh, the problems with the literary sources. My book came out just after Hagerism appeared, uh, Patricia Crona and Michael Cook's epic-making book, Hagerism. Your book on the conquest. Yes, it came right. out a few years after Hagerism. Hagerism was, I think, 77, and my mm -hmm. book. And so... I had just submitted my completed manuscript to the Princeton University Press and Hagerism appears, which seemed to sort of invalidate everything I had said because I was using the traditional sources in a way that they said we can't use them. So, so this... Now, again, I am by no means an expert on this because I am just sort of getting my feet wet in it. But Patricia Croner, at the very end of the video, they talk about her. Tom Holland um, talks about her on this channel too. She was the one who sort of broke open Islamic studies because up until then, everybody just sort of treated it with kid gloves. And this is, you know, this is part of the dynamic of sort of what's going on in our culture with respect to privileged groups. So privileged groups have the uh, distinct uh, underprivileged status of nobody speaking the truth to them because... Their, their supposed or imagined privilege means that everybody has to sort of walk on eggshells or pull their punches or be nicey-nicey to their face even while other ideas rumble on the surface, under the surface. So, so he had written this book and he had just used all of the Islamic sources the way everyone else had done and sort of the way people had done with the Bible, let's say, up until the early modern period when... This whole idea of critical study, uh, no holds barred, skepticism, all of that stuff starts going at it. And so he reads this book, probably, I, I don't know the book, probably a book that's sort of skeptical historiography with respect to the origins of Hebrew scripture. Now, again, the, the Old and New Testament have been subject to this right from the start in the Enlightenment period. In other words, the Old and New Testament have been just a battleground and have been tested and gone over and fought over and on and on and on and on and on. But, but the Quran, oh, we'll, we'll, let's not, let's not touch any of that because, you know, it's, it's sort of like you have an aunt over there who's, she's a little sensitive about, you know, she's a little sensitive about how she looks and she walks out of the house and, this isn't looking particularly well, but the rest of the family just, you know, just don't, don't say anything to Aunt Sadie, you know, because you know how she is. And then she just kind of goes out into public looking like that. And everybody else looks like it's, you know, <laughs> letting her suffer <laughs> is worse than having to deal with her. If we say, do you really want to go out in that? So, um, 
So he writes this book, uses all the traditional sources, and at that point, this other book sort of upends Islamic study, and now suddenly his work, well, he's going to have to go back, go back to the beginning. Lit a fire under me to start examining the the uh, historiography of these sources of Tabari and all these other chronicles, which I had used. Um, and uh, what I blithely thought would be a, a a question of a couple of years or maybe a year or so in writing a, an article on it uh, ended up taking me about 20 years before I got to narratives of Islamic origins. Um, and that, the reason it took so long, as I explained actually in the preface to the book, the reason it took so long was, besides the fact that I'm lazy maybe, but was that I was starting off with an assumption that wasn't true that everybody else was making. So I adopted this assumption. And I, I actually wrote a first chapter to the, what was gonna be my book on historiography um, that was based on that assumption. And, but the fact was that even though rationally, I didn't realize that this idea was wrong, I somehow emotionally sensed that it was wrong. And that created a block. I could not proceed with the work. Now one of the videos I'm watching right now, which is absolutely outstanding, but I'm not done with, is Drew Johnson and Sam Tiedemann. This is an outstanding video. This is this is really good. And and Drew's work has sort of been on the outskirts of the corner for a while. I dipped into it fairly early on, but I, you know, there's only so much bandwidth and Paul Anleitner did a conversation with him about evolution and now Sam has done with randomness and it's, it's, it's a great video. And, and early on they were talking about, um, now if you go way back towards the beginning of my video journey, I did a few videos on randomness because I always had this intuition that we weren't really talking about, let's say, pure, true randomness because we can't see that far, that far through anything. And so actually a lot of this randomness is approximation. So I'm super excited about these two taking up this topic. But Sam here makes a comment about evolution in the Christian community. To come to be as organisms is random. Therefore, things are meaningless. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a little bit like, well, well, why? Right. That that seems like a jump. Um, yeah. And, and that a lot of a lot of I felt like the argument looking back, like as a teenager, I didn't quite pick up on this. Right. Right. But I think that a lot of the creation evolution debate really was at actually a theological level right. um, and a meta story level. Like, is life purposeful? Right. Uh, does morality have some higher source? Um uh, d should I understand humans as having some guiding purpose that I should orient myself to? Or is this whole show meaningless? Is it arbitrary and, and sort of nihilistic and those sorts of things? But we are using, we are arguing about those ideas by arguing about genes and Adam and Eve and how penguins yeah. got to Antarctica and stuff like that. But really the argument that we are having was at this upper layer and when people who might not be very scientifically educated at all, they can still smell some right. of the metaphysical baggage right. in an idea and know that that doesn't fit with their metaphysical ideas. Even if they're not very highly trained or haven't thought about these things in a deep level, humans have sort of a gut intuition on those sorts of things. And I think that's really what was going on. And like you said, th these debates aren't dead, but they were at a much higher pitch and much more central in the culture yes. war about 20 yeah. years ago than they are now and and yeah i'm, I'm glad you said phil or uh, metaphysical baggage because now i know i can say such things um <clears throat> but yes the metaphysical baggage in these conversations <clears throat> excuse me um and i think what's important for me now this was not in the book that we're talking about right now but i have another book i did with cambridge university press uh called biblical philosophy where i do actually argue from the biblical literature that the biblical authors were very tuned into the issue of randomness and chance and they actually frame what we call miracles of course they don't have a word for miracle in the biblical languages uh, but they call them signs and wonders but they frame them in such a way against a null hypothesis of chance um mm -hmm. all right so i am totally interested in that video
But that's not the video we're dealing with right now. But I just wanted to bring in Sam's point that we do have these intuitions and they're not, they're not, they're not surefire. They're not infallible, but they're not always wrong either. And another video I want to make is at the end of my conversation with John Verveke, we started, we started talking a little bit about, um, the spirit of finesse. And he said, that's a, that's a, that's an optimal grip thing. And I, I'd say, yes, it is. But this is exactly what we're always doing with relevance, realization, and optimal grip. Waves of, waves of obsession just yesterday released just an outstanding video on, um, see, I've got so many videos to put out right now. I'm just trying not to overwhelm the channel. But he's 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 been doing some really good work, and some more will be coming out in that. Okay, back to this. Okay. My system wouldn't let me proceed with the work. The assumption was that there was, you know, there was um, some kind of sense of history uh, in ancient Arabia and in the early Muslim community that they already had a notion of history that they wanted to do a history, write a history. And so, I okay, what he said right there is so important because basically what he said, which is what we all do, is we sort of back project our world onto the world we're looking back on. And that, that in, in some ways is what we're talking about when we're talking about historiography. And as he starts to, first of all, you know, the study of Islam comes into the modern period. So it's like all of these assumptions that you have, all of this dogma for these scholars, they sort of dare to say, Islam, meet the enlightenment. You're going to have fun. <laughs> Just talk to the Christians and the Jews. See how that's gone for them. So here comes the enlightenment, Islam. Buckle up because it's going to get bumpy. And, um, and then he begins to realize that, wait a minute, what's going on in terms of what they're writing and what they're doing is not what we're doing. When we say history, we have the Enlightenment has come through and completely rewired what we understand history to be. And all of these rules of the Enlightenment are right there. Now, on one hand... We're, we're sort of past peak enlightenment in many places in the West, but these waves sort of run through the world unevenly, and Islam, hey baby, enlightenment is coming for you, and um, I, I would much rather have gospels that are very, very close to the source than the books that you guys have in terms of what the Enlightenment is going to do to your origin story. I mean, there's just a few people that have dabbled in this so far. And um, wait, wait until it goes through. If you think, if you think Christians have been, who have been wrestling with these issues for centuries now, um, and, and, the, and again, you know, we have, we have Jesus and Paul writing to Corinth very soon after. I mean, our historiography, compared to almost anything else, including so much of the history that you have in the Roman Empire and so on and so forth, anybody who's in looking at the New Testament, you're, you're like, in terms of the ancient world, you got it really good. Islam? No, this is our tradition. Oh. And then someone might say, well, look at, isn't tradition coming back? Isn't tradition coming back strong? Yeah, you know, there's a reason Jordan Peterson sort of gave comfort to Islam because some of the same things that are sort of pushing the Enlightenment back against Christianity, well, you can use them to push back against Islam, but all of that work has been done with Christianity and it's just not going to get ignored because, you know, again, as these waves go through, all of those tools that the Enlightenment gave us, they're still there and they're going to be used. And so it's, it's a, it's a big deal. So I, I, it'd be nice to come back to this video because this whole thesis of the believers 
I find it so interesting in terms of that question of folk religion and low resolution religion and shallow religion and civilizational religion that tends to be very shallow. You think about American Christianity, even in the mid 20th century, where in some ways, you know, Christian nationalism was so ubiquitous, nobody even thought about it. And you've got, you know, all these Hollywood are doing all these Bible movies like, you know, The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur and The Robe and all that whole style of movie. Well, American religiosity, especially sort of in the, 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 the cult, the civilizational Christianity of the United States and the, in the middle of the 20th century, you know, it was super thin. And, you know, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, let's not talk too much about the divinity of Christ or the... Uh, presence of Christ in the Eucharist, or or historiography in terms of Moses, yada yada yada. Don't don't don't, don't look at any of these things too much because then we're going to have a fight. So let's just keep it all right here and play nicey nicey. Apparently, Shia and Sunnis and other groups within Islam uh, have really struggled with nicey nicey. So, but again, all of this is to set up what I think was one of the most incredible works of historiography that I've read, which is the first chapter of G.K. Chesterton's biography of St. Francis. Now, part of what's interesting about the audiobook of St. Francis of Assisi is that it's, it's read by Simon Vance, who reads a lot of C.S. Lewis materials, and I just find this playing in my brain in a funny way because in my mind, I'm trying to hear G.K. Chesterton, but I keep hearing C.S. Lewis because Simon Vance is reading it. But Chesterton starts off right away with historiography. Read by Simon Vance. Chat. Well, let me do something a second. The problem of St. Francis. A sketch of St. Francis of Assisi in modern... Uh, a little too fast. English may be written in one of three ways. Between these, the writer must make his selection. And the third way, which is adopted here, is in some respects the most difficult of all. At least it would be the most difficult if the other two were not impossible. Now, now what Chesterton does right off the bat is say, when we're going to try, when we're going to try to talk about Saint Francis, we have a problem. And you'll notice again that there's. Chesterton's going to take these problems on head-on. It's not going to be walking on eggshells or worrying about Aunt Sadie over there. We're going to have to talk about these problems because actually these problems go far beyond just trying to get a sense of a 13th century saint. First, he may deal with this great and most amazing man as a figure in secular history and a model of social virtues. Okay, so secular history. One of the things that Peugeot often makes mention of, sort of in an inverse way, is he says, Peugeot tries to say, well, religion isn't fundamentally about morality. Now, now certainly religions deal with morality, but part of Jonathan Peugeot's project is to say that religion is about the structure of the world. That's, and that's sort of one of the big changes that Peugeot sort of brings to the conversation. He's saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to focus on morality so much. I'm going to focus on structure. And because the patterns are the structures. And so one of the interesting things about St. Francis is that St. Francis is beloved. And he's beloved by people beyond the church based on this, their selective understanding of who St. Francis was. He seems... Um, pagan or environmental or nice or enlightened as opposed to, let's say, you know, bad people and things like the crusade. He may describe this divine demagogue as being, as he probably was, the world's one quite sincere Democrat. Now, notice Chesterton is already playing with us because he says they may describe this divine demagogue because Chesterton knows full well that if your image of St. Francis is just sort of this nicey nice guy who talks to animals and tries to make peace with the Saracens and all those little tidbits, the, the low resolution Francis that you might know, oh, you have absolutely no idea of the rigor and the, hmm, 
difficulties. He may say, what means very little, that St. Francis was in advance of his age. He may say, what is quite true, that St. Francis anticipated all that is most liberal and sympathetic in the modern mood. The love of nature, the love of animals, the sense of social compassion, the sense of the spiritual dangers of prosperity and even of property. All those things that nobody understood before Wordsworth were familiar to St. Francis. All those things that were... Now again, he notes Wordworth, Wordsworth because of, of course, romanticism. So people in the modern era that are sort of post-Christian and, and full of romanticism look back and say, ah, finally a Christian I can appreciate. First discovered by Tolstoy could have been taken for granted by St. Francis. He could be presented not only as a human, but a humanitarian hero. Indeed, as the first hero of humanism. He has been described as a sort of morning star of the Renaissance. And in comparison with all these things, his ascetical theology can be ignored or dismissed as a contemporary accident. Okay, so here, one of the things you bump into in terms of historiography is the frame problem. So we're going to frame, we're going to frame Francis as sort of a modern. And so then, well, he's just, he's just shining brightly as a modern, you know, no religion necessary. This is, this is sort of Rob Reiner, uh, golden rulishness and St. Francis. Yeah. I, I've got problems with dread Christian nationalism, but St. Francis. Yeah. I hardly see any religion in him. Oh, really? Which was fortunately not a fatal accident. His religion can be regarded as a superstition but an inevitable superstition from which not even genius could wholly free itself in the consideration of which it would be unjust to condemn St. Francis for his self-denial or unduly chide him for his chastity. It is quite true that even from so detached a standpoint his stature would still appear heroic. There would still be a great deal to be said about the man who tried to end the Crusades by talking to the Saracens or who interceded with the Emperor for the birds. The writer might describe in a purely historical spirit the whole of the Franciscan inspiration that was felt in the painting of Giotto, in the poetry of Dante, in the miracle plays that made possible the modern drama, and in so many things that are already appreciated by the modern culture. He may try to do it, as others have done, almost without raising any religious question at all. In short, he may try to tell the story of a saint without God, which is like being told to write the life of Nansen and forbidden to mention the North Pole. Now, part of the issue of reading Chesterton and actually a fair amount of Lewis's references that everybody, or most everybody, reading him in his day would talk about that we say told the life of Nansen? Who's Nansen? Wow. See, this is what's fun about actually, instead of just reading it saying, I don't know who the heck this Nansen is, let's look him up. Nansen is in 1890. Can't even say his first name. Uh, Norwegian, 1861 to 1930, was a Norwegian polymath and Nobel Prize laureate. He gained prominence at various points in his life as explorer, scientist, diplomat, humanitarian, and co-founder of the Fatherland League. Boy, that would <laughs> naming branding of the Fatherland League. Uh, that, that that that's that's not gonna make uh, that's not gonna make the moderns feel too good. He led the team that made the first crossing of the Greenland interior in 1888, traversing the island on cross-country skis. He won international fame after reaching a record northern latitude of 86 degrees, 14, um, 14 out. In his Fram expedition of 1893 to 1896, although he retired from exploring after his return to Norway, his techniques for polar travel and his innovations in the, in the equipment and clothing influenced a generation of subsequent Arctic and Antarctic expositions. Super interesting dude. Wow. Really cool. See that? He could, Chesterton could just drop his name and just assume everybody would know it. And today, not even remembered. Boy. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, little man. The wind blows and the flowers wither and its place remembers it no more. Second, he may go to the opposite extreme and decide, as it were, to be defiantly devotional. He may make the theological enthusiasm as thoroughly the theme as it was the theme of the first Franciscans. He may treat religion as the real thing that it was to the real Francis of Assisi. 
he can find an austere joy, so to speak, in parading the paradoxes of asceticism and all the topsy-turvydom of humility. He can stamp the whole history with the stigmata, record fasts like fights against a dragon, till in the vague modern mind, St. Francis is as dark a figure as St. Dominic. So again, Chesterton takes the frame, first says, he's a modern humanitarian. Oh no, he's religious. I, Chesterton just inverts it right there. And remember, Chesterton is saying, you can't do this. In short, he can produce what many in our world will regard as a sort of photographic negative, the reversal of all lights and shades, what the foolish will find as impenetrable as darkness and even many of the wise will find almost as invisible as if it were written in silver upon white. Such a study of St. Francis would be unintelligible to anyone who does not share his religion, perhaps only partly. Okay, now, and this is where the connection with Islam gets interesting because you have inside-outside raised in islam this is this is what you know you receive the tradition this is this is the air you breathe this is the water you swim in this is all of this this is your civilization or religion me you know people oh you're going to become muslim i just and i always remember that because when people suggest i'm going to become muslim or or some of these other things it's like i really don't think so now of course i when, I, when I'm talking to other people about Christianity and they such things, I just think, ah, oh, you don't know. But of course, I'm on the inside. I'm on the inside. And so what we're seeing here is sort of, what frame are you looking at Francis through? Well, I'm looking at him from the inside. Well, is Francis really in the same inside as you are? Well, if you're Roman Catholic or Christian or something like this, well, to a degree, yes, but... Pay attention to the insides and outsides of these things. Intelligible to anyone who does not share his vocation. According to degrees of judgment, it will be regarded as something too bad or too good for the world. The only difficulty about doing the thing in this way is that it cannot be done. It would really require a saint to write about the life of a saint. In the present case, the objections to such a course are insuperable. So in other words, Chesterton says, yeah, you might think you're on the inside of the same thing Francis is on the inside of. And beginning of chapter two, he's going to start leading us into, which is, again, another just superb chapter. I think this book is just, I've just found this book to be breathtaking. Um, you know, it was, it was amazing that Lewis, when he would talk about apologetics, would often say, well, it's already been done by Chesterton. I mean, it's just really quite, quite dramatic. But, but Chesterton will say basically, well, you know, yeah, you, you think, do you think because you go to Catholic Church every week, you're on the same insides as Francis? That's why he says it would require a saint to write about the life of a saint. But here we are. So now we have to get to the third, what Chesterton says is basically the only way we can approach this. Third, he may try to do what I have tried to do here. And as I have already suggested, the course has peculiar problems of its own. The writer may put himself in the position of the ordinary modern outsider and inquirer. And indeed, the present writer is still largely and was once entirely in that position. Okay, now, the modern outsider and inquirer. And, and what's brilliant about this is Chesterton, at basically peak modernity, which is the end of the 19th, early 20th century, modernity first starts to crack in the First World War. And then the Second World War comes along. And of course, these things are waves. And um, in a sense, to see, to point to modernity is like pointing at a mountain and trying to differentiate it from all of the other mountains in the range. Where does one mountain end and the other begin? Well, we just tend to look at the peaks. But, but Chesterton's well aware enough of his own culture that he can say, now... On the one hand, we just sort of look at it from the outside, and modernity imagines that we can just sort of see things as they are. And Chesterton's way too smart for that. No, 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 no. We, we have our own lenses here. You can't just stick those cameras on, on top of that computer and think it sees. Cue cognitive science. He may start from the standpoint of a man who already admires St. Francis but only for those things which such a man finds admirable. 
In other words, you may assume that the reader is at least as enlightened as Renan or Matthew Arnold. But in now, Matthew Arnold, of course, gives us that quote about the, the tide, the receding tide that Justin Brierley begins his book with. But I suspect, I'm not going to dig right now, I suspect that Renan and Arnold both attempted biographies of Francis. In the light of that enlightenment, he may try to illuminate what Renan and Matthew Arnold left dark. He may try to use what is understood to explain what is not understood. He may try to say to the modern English reader, here is an historical character which is admittedly attractive to many of us already by its gaiety, its romantic imagination, its spiritual courtesy and camaraderie, but which also contains elements, evidently equally sincere and emphatic, which seem to you quite remote and repulsive. But after all, this man was a man and not a half dozen men. What seems inconsistency to you did not seem inconsistency to him. Let us see whether we can understand, with the help of the existing understanding, these other things that now seem to be doubly dark by their intrinsic gloom and their ironic contrast. Today on Twitter I came across a post of someone who was horrified at Netflix. That Netflix, in the first ten minutes, it was a, it was a YouTube, it was a Twitter account that had something against wokeness and said, Netflix is already making is already making Alexander the Great gay. And it's like, oh, I guess he's never, he hasn't, he hasn't listened to the rest of his history. He hasn't listened to Tom Holland. He doesn't understand that, you know, it might be that Netflix is like, oh, Alexander was non-binary. They were all non-binary. <laughs> or at least a lot of them. <laughs> at least those who could. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, at least the men, because they had the choice. Sex in the sex in the ancient world, sex in the classical world. This these categories, these identities are very contemporary things. And then suddenly, and then I also noticed a thing that Elon Musk had posted about uh, basically what's been happening in terms of child sex education in American public schools, and it's like. Ah, uh, yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. Are we all learning frames yet? Are we all learning yet? I do not mean, of course, that I can really reach a psychological completeness in this crude and curt outline. But I mean that this is the only controversial condition that I shall here assume. That I am dealing with a sympathetic outsider. I shall not assume any more or any less agreement than this. A materialist may not care whether the inconsistencies are reconciled or not. A Catholic may not see any inconsistencies to reconcile. Those are his first two, the materialist and the Catholic. The Catholic just, oh, he's ours. You know, we're going to, we're just going to take the whole thing because he's one of us. And the materialist, well, we're just going to, I don't have a frame. <laughs> How lovely. How lovely. But I am here addressing the ordinary common man, sympathetic but skeptical. And I can only rather hazily hope that, by approaching the great saint's story through what is evidently picturesque and popular about it, I may at least leave the reader understanding a little more than he did before of the consistency of a complete character. That by approaching it in this way, we may at least get a glimmering of why the poet who praised his lord, the sun, often hid himself in a dark cavern. Or why the saint who was so gentle with his brother, the wolf, was so harsh to his brother, the ass, as he nicknamed his own body. And right away, we can get a sense from Chesterton, oh, Chesterton's not going to try to understand by, he's going he's gonna to open the aperture as wide as it can. He'll still have a frame, he says right off the bat. This isn't something he's really going to get around, but he's going to take his best shot at it. Of why the troubadour, who said that love set his heart on fire, separated himself from women of why the singer who rejoiced in the strength and gaiety of the fire deliberately rolled himself in the snow, of why the very song, which cries with all the passion of a pagan, praised be God for our sister, Mother Earth, which brings forth varied fruits and grass and glowing flowers, ends almost with the words, praised be God for our sister, the death of the body. Renan and Matthew Arnold failed utterly at this test. They were content to follow Francis with their praises until they were stopped by their prejudices, the stubborn prejudices of the skeptic. The moment Francis began to do something they did not understand... So right there, the stubborn prejudices of 
the skeptic. Because I went, no, wait a minute. Skepticism is supposed to be this solvent that dissolves all of our prejudices. And of course, you can drop John Verveke right in that moment and say, no, actually, the prejudices and the insights are part of the same package. You don't get one without the other. And so this is going to be hard. Or did not like. They did not try to understand, still less to like it. They simply turned their backs on the whole business and walked no more with him. No man will get any further along a path of historical inquiry in that fashion. These skeptics are really driven to drop the whole subject in despair, to leave the most simple and sincere of all historical characters as a mass of contradiction, to be praised on the principle of the curate's egg. Arnold refers to the asceticism of Alverno almost hurriedly, as if it were an unlucky but undeniable blot on the beauty of the story, or rather as if it were a pitiable breakdown and bathos at the end of story. Now this is simply to be stone blind to the whole point of any story. To represent Mount Alverno as the mere collapse of Francis is exactly like representing Mount Calvary as the mere collapse of Christ. Those mountains are mountains, whatever else they are, and it is nonsense to say, like the Red Queen, that they are comparative hollows or negative holes in the ground. They were quite manifestly meant to be culminations and landmarks. To treat the stigmata as a sort of scandal, to be touched on tenderly but with pain, is exactly like treating the original five wounds of Jesus Christ as five blots on his character. You may dislike the idea of asceticism. You may dislike equally the idea of martyrdom. For that matter, you may have an honest and natural dislike of the whole conception of sacrifice symbolized by the cross. But if it is an intelligent dislike, you will retain the capacity for seeing the point of the story, the story of a martyr or even the story of a monk. You will not be able rationally to read the gospel and regard the crucifixion as an afterthought or an anticlimax or an accident in the life of Christ. It is obviously the point of the story, like the point of a sword, the sword that pierced the heart of the mother of God. So what Chesterton does is similar to what Lewis does in his book Miracles. He says, well, you sort of take on, so lingering behind us is are the sort of the chattering um, anxieties of the postmodern. Oh, even 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 just pointing out these things, that must be random. No, because if everything is just random, remember, you can go back and listen to Drew Johnson and, and Sam talk about randomness and a little bit of skepticism that we can apply to the, the imaginably random purposelessness. There are patterns, and they fit together. And you might say, well, the, these gospel writers completely missed the point because, you know, all of the four gospels either hit something or miss something, but they all have the crucifixion, and they all have it prominently. Well, why would the crucifixion be prominent? Well, let's give tradition its due, but tradition isn't alone. And you will not be able rationally to read the story of a man presented as a mirror of Christ without understanding his final phase as a man of sorrows, and at least artistically appreciating the appropriateness of his receiving, in a cloud of mystery and isolation inflicted by no human hand, the unhealed everlasting wounds that heal the world. The practical reconciliation of the gaiety and austerity I must leave the story itself to suggest. But since I have mentioned Matthew Arnold and Renard, as the rationalistic admirers of St. Francis, I will here give a hint of what it seems to me most advisable for such readers to keep in mind. These distinguished writers found things like the stigmata a stumbling block because to them a religion was a philosophy. It was an impersonal thing. And it is only the most personal passion that provides here an approximate earthly parallel. Now this is, if you want to get a sense for how things are changing, again, notice where the conversation is going with respect to philosophers, not necessarily philosophy. Because in the modern period, and notice that when you study philosophy, well, you've got the ancients, you've got the Greeks, and then, you know, after the Greeks, well, then they're all Christians. They're almost theologians all the way through. And so we pay no attention to them. And suddenly with Descartes, okay, we have... Once again, the beginning of modern philosophy, because philosophy is just sort of part of this, well, we're just going to see the world as it is. And, um, okay, 
And I'm not about to tell you that philosophy doesn't have its place or its work or its importance. In fact, that that video with with uh, with Sam and Drew, um, I mean, part of part of the point that Drew makes is that mm, this is. And part of the point that John Verveke makes is that, well, actually, there's a lot of people who know very little philosophy at all. And what, what happened, he talked about getting a PhD. Well, you're supposed to be basically a philosopher. And, and what's happened to PhDs is that the last thing that many of them know, depending on the discipline, is any philosophy at all. A man will not roll in the snow for a stream of tendency by which all things fulfill the law of their being. He will not go without food in the name of something not ourselves that makes for righteousness. He will do things like this, or pretty much like this, under quite a different impulse. He will do these things when he is in love. The first... Okay. A little bit more from Charlie's great little... These, these videos that Charlie and Chris are putting out are really helpful for me because what they've done is sort of taken these salient moments over the last six years and brought them up and just put them out there. And at the end of the day, it turns out to be hope. Love in the comedy can be seen as the animating force behind everything that Dante talks about. And not only the animating force in the story, but really presented as something like the animated, animating force of everything. That is the manner in which the world exists. And for us as modern people, that is a very strange thing to think, to think that the world exists through love. It's kind of like the question of where is the kingdom? It's between us. It's in the love. Well, where is the love? Well, where is the love between that couple? Well, it's in their children. It's in their home. It's in how their story has impacted other people. What Chesterton basically says is you cannot understand Francis as someone who set out to be a saint. I'm going to be a saint, and this is what saints do. No, he's a lover, <laughs> and it's his love that animates him. And Francis isn't alone. Love is what, as Peugeot just said, you know, brings the world together. fact to realize about St. Francis is involved with the first fact with which his story starts, that when he said from the first that he was a troubadour and said later that he was a troubadour of a newer and nobler romance, he was not using a mere metaphor but understood himself much better than the scholars understand him. He was, to the last agonies of asceticism, a troubadour. He was a lover. He was a lover of God. And he was really and truly a lover of men, possibly a much rarer mystical vocation. A lover of men is very nearly the opposite of a philanthropist. Indeed, the pedantry of the Greek word carries something like a satire on itself. A philanthropist may be said to love anthropoids, but as St. Francis did not love humanity, but men, so he did not love Christianity, but Christ. Say, if you think so, that he was a lunatic loving an imaginary person, but an imaginary person, not an imaginary idea. And for the modern reader, the clue to the asceticism and all the rest can be found in the stories of lovers when they seemed to be rather like lunatics. So in other words, philosophia, well, that's lovers of wisdom. And what's so amazing is that so much philosophy has gotten so far away from wisdom because it's actually, you cannot love wisdom without loving human life and how to live. Francis loved people, loved God, and that's what energized him. And so Chesterton rightly says, you don't understand Francis if you don't understand him as a lover. Tell us the tale of one of the troubadours and the wild things he would do for his lady and the whole of the modern puzzle disappears. In such a romance, there would be no contradiction between the poet gathering flowers in the sun and enduring a freezing vigil in the snow, between his praising all earthly and bodily beauty and then refusing to eat, and between his glorifying gold and purple and perversely going in rags, between his showing pathetically a hunger for a happy life and a thirst for a heroic death. All these riddles would be easily resolved in the simplicity of any noble love, only this was so noble a love that nine out of ten men have hardly even heard of it. We shall see later that this parallel of the earthly lover has a very practical relation to the problems of his life, 
as to his relations with his father and his friends and their families. The modern reader will almost always find that if he could only find this kind of love as a reality, he could feel this kind of extravagance as a romance. But I only note it here as a preliminary point because, though it is very far from being the final truth in the matter, it is the best approach to it. The reader cannot even begin to see the sense of a story that may well seem to him a very wild one until he understands that to this great mystic his religion was not a thing like a theory, but a thing like a love affair. And the only purpose of this prefatory chapter is to explain the limits of the present book, which is only addressed to that part of the modern world which finds in St. Francis a certain modern difficulty, which can admire him yet hardly accept him, or which can appreciate the saint almost without the sanctity. And my only claim even to attempt such a task is that I myself have for so long been in various stages of such a condition. Many thousand things that I now partly comprehend I should have thought utterly incomprehensible. Many things I now hold sacred I should have scouted as utterly superstitious. Many things that seem to me lucid and enlightened, now they are seen from the inside, I should honestly have called dark and barbarous seen from the outside. When long ago, in those days of boyhood, my fancy first caught fire with the glory of Francis of Assisi. I too have lived in Arcady, but even in Arcady I met one walking in a brown habit who loved the woods better than Pan. The figure in the brown habit stands above the hearth in the room where I write, and alone among many such images, at no stage of my pilgrimage has he ever seemed to me a stranger. There is something of a harmony between the hearth and the firelight and my own first pleasure in his words about the brother fire, for he stands far enough back in my memory to mingle with all those more domestic dreams of the first days. Even the fantastic shadows thrown by fire make a sort of shadow pantomime that belongs to the nursery. Yet the shadows were even then the shadows of his favourite beast and birds, as he saw them, grotesque but haloed with the love of God. His brother wolf, and brother sheep seemed then almost like the brer fox and brer rabbit of a more Christian Uncle Remus. I have come slowly to see many more marvellous aspects of such a man, but I have never lost that one. His figure stands on a sort of bridge connecting my boyhood with my conversion to many other things, for the romance of his religion has penetrated even the rationalism of that vague Victorian time. Insofar as I have had this experience, I may be able to lead others a little further along that road, but only a very little further. Nobody knows better than I do now that it is a road upon which angels might fear to tread. But though I am certain of failure, I am not altogether overcome by fear. For he suffered fools gladly. And that last line, I'll leave it there. For Francis suffered fools gladly. So we do project back, and the solvent of the solvents of modernity have their purposes, but it's it's finally love that we live for, and it's love that really makes things move forward. All right, leave a comment. Let me know what you think.